Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me as we continue our series in 1 John. This morning we are in 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 11 through verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 can be found on page 1,229 in your pew Bible. And if you would, you can turn in your bulletin to page 5 to see an outline for our time together this morning. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Everyone who does not abide abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning, Father. Uh, we come to your word now, thankful that in it you reveal not only yourself, but you reveal to us your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that your Spirit would accompany the preaching of your word and that we would know you and know your Son more clearly as a result of our time together this morning. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. First John is a letter that is written to assure Christians. But it's not the kind of assurance that we would normally equate with American Christianity. John's not writing to assure you that the get-out-of-hell-free card you have in your pocket is still there and still good. No, the assurance that John is writing about is tied to a particular fellowship. Namely, that we can know that we are in fellowship with the apostolic faith and witness. And that's not normally how we think about such things. We think of our own individual standing with God. And we test where we are in our own individual standing with God by our feelings and our experiences. But John lets us know that there is a standard outside of our feelings and our experiences. There is, in fact, an objective standard by which we may know. Now, that's good news in that it removes it out of the realm of my own feelings and out of my own experience. It's also bad news in that it moves it outside of the realm of my own feelings and my own experience. I was talking, uh, I think it was Saturday morning by that point in time. I was talking with Bob 
and we made the statement, you know, when it comes to the kind of lies that we tell ourselves, it's stunning. Because if another human being told you the sheer amount of baloney that you tell yourself, you would have nothing to do with them. Like at a certain point, you would just walk away and be like, you're not my friend, you're a jerk. But we do it to ourselves all the time. And the really good news then about 1 John is it's not about your feelings. It's not about your experiences. There is an objective standard. Well, to help us then assess the state of our fellowship, John in this letter gives us three tests. The test of doctrine or belief and that doctrine of belief is always tied to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A test of morality. How is it that I'm actually living my life? And the test of love. Last week, we saw John give us the test of morality. He's going to come back to it again. But at the conclusion of our text from last week, we saw in verse 10 that John is going to talk about love now. Look, if you would, in your Bible at John chapter 3, verse 10. He says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, that's the moral test, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he lets us know that he's moving from this moral test into the test of love. And so once again, there's more going on than just my own subjective feelings that I would call, uh, towards those I would call my brother or sister. John addresses our attitude and then questions whether or not our actions match the profuse professions of love that we might make to our brothers and sisters. Now, on page five in the bulletin, you now see not only the outline, but the top of the outline, you see something called the big idea, which in one sentence, hopefully, is what this text is about, or at least it's what the sermon is about. And here's our big idea for this morning. Those within the fellowship of apostolic faith will love in both attitude and action. Those within the fellowship of apostolic faith will love in both attitude and action. So first, check your attitude. Check your attitude. There's something really, really unique to this particular letter going on beginning in verse 11. This is the first time in this letter that John points us to a biblical book that's not his gospel. You see, every biblical writer understands they're a part of a larger conversation, and that larger conversation has to do with the rest of Scripture. And so you know if you've read the Gospels, the prophet Isaiah is all over the place because they understand if you're going to talk about the Messiah, then you've got to talk about the messianic promises that are made in the book of Isaiah. Well, when John tends to talk about particularly the doctrine test, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he points us back to his Gospels. That's his jam. John knows the stuff he's written really, really well. And so this is the first time in the letter in which John points us to something that's not his gospel. Rather, he points us back by way of contrast and comparison to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, the text that Jenny read for us this morning. 
And so he tells us about the message that we've heard from the beginning. Not just the beginning of our walk with Jesus, not just from the beginning of our faith journey, but from the beginning, the beginning. Because he says in verse 12 that we should not be like Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, God condemns the murder of Abel in the most decisive way. He banishes Cain. He lets Cain know that there are indeed going to be consequences for our sin. And so in doing so, John is saying, listen, the message you heard from the very beginning was that we're supposed to be loving one another, not murdering one another. A professor in seminary who said the absence of love was not necessarily hate, but the absence of love was unlove. And so we see Cain guilty of this kind of hatred. And he did so in verse 12. And we see again, John ties actions to attitudes in verse 12. Why did he do it? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Friends, one of the things that John wants to make sure we have very clear in our minds is that our actions will always follow our attitudes. Or put it another way, if your attitude is X, at some point, invariably, your attitude is going to be made known through your actions. Cain's issue is not really with Abel. Cain's issue is with God. And yet, what does Cain do? Well, he can't murder God, but he can murder the image bearer. Of God. And so he hates and murders his brother. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it wasn't his brother who called him on the carpet. It wasn't his brother who said to him, Hey, uh, why is your countenance fallen and why are you downcast? That's a great phrase, by the way. Next time your spouse looks at you funny, you can just be like, Hey, why is your countenance fallen? See how far that gets you. And yet, even though Cain's issue is with God, he murders his brother. It's interesting then, the turn that, uh, that John is going to make. You would think, okay, well, now he's talked about this because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And now he's going to continue to kind of dig in on the Cain and Abel story. But in verse 13, he takes it and completely turns it. And he says this, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, what's going on in Genesis chapter 4 is more than just brothers who are arguing over who gets the phone or who gets more time with the Xbox. No, the brothers are actually representative. One of good seed, godly seed, seed that's going to serve and honor the Lord, and seed that wants nothing to do with him. And so Abel represents the righteous. Cain then represents the world. Not the world as in everyone, everywhere, the kind of world that John talks about in John chapter 3 when we're told that God loves the world. But rather the issue here is the world as all of those who are opposed to God's rule and reign through his son, Jesus the Christ. And so he says, listen, in the same way that Cain hated Abel, don't be surprised when the world hates you. 
Don't be surprised when those of you who are seeking to serve and honor the Lord and make his name known, don't be surprised when those who are completely opposed to his rule and reign then hate you. And yet we are surprised, aren't we? Or stunned when non-Christians act like non-Christians. We're stunned when people who have accepted a narrative for understanding the world and how it got here and the fact that it's basically all just an accident, we're stunned when they have no respect for human life. We're stunned when they say and do things that we just can't even comprehend. And yet, John's counsel to the church, John's counsel to us is, listen, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And yet, for all the talk of tolerance and all the talk of understanding and all the talk of education and all the talk of being kinder and gentler, we are surprised. John makes it clear that we pass out of death into life, and we know this because love. We love the brothers and sisters. And if you don't abide in that love, abides, you abide in death. Friends, we need to be reminded, and, and John is he's not saying this in so many words, but what he's teaching us is this. Uh, hatred is more than just an emotion. It's more than just a feeling. Hatred is an attitude of both heart and mind towards malevolence. So it's not just the, uh, you root for a different team than I do. I'm fired up because my team lost yet again. Therefore, I hate you. No. No, it is something that we feel and think. We internalize it. We are whole people. And after a season, that which we feed ourselves in terms of our emotions and that which we feed ourselves in terms of our mind, it's going to come out in our actions. And so step one, in understanding and in, and in and wrestling with the test that John is giving us, test one is to really sit down and to check our attitude. Do we have love for our brothers and sisters, or are we characterized by, and I'll use this phrase, are we characterized by a kind of unlove? It may not be out-and-out out hatred. It might just be more of an ambivalence. But let me ask you something, parents, or I should say, uh, because these are far more unreasonable creatures, grandparents. Uh, if someone says something against one of your grandchildren, uh, do you respond with a sense of ambivalence? You're in church, don't lie. No, you respond with both feet. Hard. Why? Because you love them. And John is here telling us that, look, our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ can't be one of unlove. It can't be one of ambivalence. It has to be one of love. 
Because if you hate, you are a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. So secondly, after we've checked our attitude, we need to check our actions. We need to check our actions. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in verse 16, John can't, like, every time you talk to John, at some point in the conversation, Jesus is just going to come out. Like, he just can't help it. And sure enough, when he's going to talk about love and he's going to talk about our actions, he's going to ground it, verse 16, <coughs> Excuse me, in what Jesus has done for us. Hey, let's talk about love. And you want to know what love looks like? It looks like Jesus. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. Hey, you want to know how to act? Well, do what Jesus did. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the life of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, when Paul is talking about the family and he's talking about love and he's talking about husbands and wives, the command to husbands is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. What's that mean? You get to boss her around, you get to be the king. When you come in, she should hand you a crown and a robe and a beverage of your choice. No. It means that you should, uh, you should sacrifice, you should give up your life for your spouse. Now, a really interesting thing in verse 17, he says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We need to stop there for just a moment and think about uh, the context and the people to whom John was writing. So in John's day, there was a very high cost, or there could be, for becoming a Christian. Typically speaking, the dominant sort of um, structure within, that, within Roman society was the family. And when we talk about the family, I don't mean like uh, you and your spouse and your children. I mean like uh, the extended sort of family unit. So it would have been, there would have been a patriarch and you would have had uncles and aunts and all of that. And you would have lived in one sort of large uh, housing complex area, right? It wouldn't have been that I live here and my brother lives down the street and my sister lives across town. No, you would have all been in the kind of one thing and attached to the one dwelling place would have been whatever it is that you did for a living. So if you were a tent maker, then you and probably your kids, and if you had aunts and uncles who were still alive or whoever, the whole thing would have been right there together. And tied to all these trades, tied to all these vocations, which is the center of the family, and the family is the center of your world, tied to all of those trades would have been the worship of particular gods or goddesses. So if you were, we know, for example, uh, if you were a silver maker, we, we learn in the book of Ephesus that the silver makers were really concerned because they made idols. That Paul and Barnabas show up in Ephesus and they're saying, hey, Artemis isn't really the goddess. There's one God and don't make images of him. He's not down with that. And so it creates a riot in the city. Well, when you became a Christian, 
And now all of a sudden, you're calling people brother and sister who aren't your biological brothers and sisters. And when the rest of the family, because it's the day that your trade or your vocation goes to the temple, because this is when your guild meets in the temple, and you're going, hey, wait a minute, I don't think I can go. Now all of a sudden, the cost of becoming a Christian means that you might lose your biological family. And if you lose your biological family, then you're losing your entire place in society. You're probably losing your trade or your vocation. And so when John writes in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? Understand this is very much a real-time, real-world issue to those whom John is writing. Gabe becomes a Christian and his family says, hey, wait a minute, we're not down with that. Gabe, you're no longer a Jasso. You're no longer a part of the family business. You need to get out now. What's Gabe going to do? Where is he going to go? How is it that he's going to care for his particular family? John says, hey, listen, if you've lost your biological family because of the gospel, it's okay. You have a spiritual family. And that spiritual family is committed to loving you. Not just in word, but that spiritual family is committed to loving you in very real, very tangible, very concrete ways. Friends, the Bible is pretty clear on this, particularly the New Testament. This isn't just a John thing. Paul talks about it. And certainly James. In the epistle of James, James makes the point, hey, listen, if you come to your gathering and you see a brother or sister in need and you say to them, be warm and be filled, but you don't do anything to alleviate the need, well, how is it exactly that you think the love of God is abiding and at work within you? It's not. I love the way uh, one hip-hop artist put this uh, it, it, it's, it's a little cheesy, but excuse me uh, and pardon me for it. Uh, they make the point, it's not just talky-talk, it must be walky-walk. Don't just give it the talky-talk. You must also have the walky-walk. It's interesting that I love that command at the end of in, in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. In just a moment, we're going to see a tangible demonstration of God's love for his people. We're going to be reminded of that wonderful truth that grounds everything that John has just told us about love in verse 16, that Christ lied, laid down his life for us. We're going to remember and celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father to lay down his life for his people. God himself invites us to come to this table. It's a family table, not the kind of family table that has to do anything with blood relation or who your kin folks are biologically or or even in an adopted sense, but no, it's for spiritual family. And it's a family table.
And every time we come to the table, we are reminded that God's love for us is not merely something that God says, but it's something that he has shown and demonstrated for us perfectly and ultimately and finally in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that there is uh, an objective standard by which we can know that with the help and guidance of your Spirit, we can discern whether or not the truth of the gospel is actually in us and that we are in the fellowship of the apostolic faith. And so, Lord, I pray this morning uh, for those of us who are are wrestling with those things. For those of us who are seeking uh, with the help of your word and your spirit to discern our standing in the faith. And Father, uh, for those times in which we understand uh, our love or our uh, what we would think would be love for our brothers and sisters has been mere talky-talk and there's been very little walky-walk. Or, Father, when our attitude towards uh, those who would profess to be our brothers and sisters is not what it ought to be. Father, thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an example of both attitude and action that we can look to. And we bless you that not only do we look to Jesus as our example, but, Father, we thank you that... uh, by his demonstration of love, there is salvation to be had. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.